could he do that? Are you on What? Charles Darwin. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Brabber, and alongside me is Logan Camden. And today, Logan, is not just a special day here on Nerd Sesh. It might as well be an actual holiday because we are beginning our NBA season preview content. It's ridiculous because the season ended not all that long ago, but because of the abbreviated offseason and because the NBA wanted to go with its regular start date for the 2021-22 season, we're just over a month away. And so we've got six divisions to preview. We've got to get through our playoffs, our award predictions, all that, while we're also talking NFL. So this is the time to start. And we're going to start, Logan, with a division that is maybe overlooked, much like the part of America in which its teams reside. It's going to be a big pro-Midwest episode today because we're talking about the Central Division. Maybe normally we would start with the Atlantic, but we're going to try to avoid Ben Simmons' talk until it is absolutely necessary because he very well may get traded and then our content becomes useless to you all. But Logan, as always here, whenever we're doing any sort of season preview content, we'll start at the top of the division and you determine who that team is. Frankly, I think that we all know who it's going to be, but I'll let you say it. So who do you have at the top of this division? Uh, I've got the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, I guess we can run through records and uh, seeding predictions right now. Last season, they finished 46 and 26. This year, I've got them going 55 and 27. And I don't have official seedings. I'll get into that as we get through our previews for, you know, each team out east and west. Right now, I've got them somewhere between the one and four seed. Uh, I'll figure out uh, as we go along where I have them specifically. So I don't know if I want to do my predictions at the beginning. I kind of want to walk the people through it, say, here are my concerns, here's what I'm excited about, and then they're wondering, ooh, how many games do you have them winning? Oh, well, thank you for letting me spoil mine uh, before we get into all the conjecture. Um, I guess I'm going to start it. You know, not a whole lot changed for Milwaukee uh, this offseason. They didn't lose a whole lot of a whole lot of people. They're returning basically the same core. Drew Holiday, Dante DiVincenzo, Middleton, Giannis, and Brooke Lopez all return. I mean, basically their only big loss, they lose P.J. Tucker and they lose Bryn Forbes. Now, P.J. was invaluable them uh, to them during this playoff run. Uh, just such a versatile, switchable defender. Um, you know, could knock down an open shot when they needed, but his defense is where he really shined. Just that gritty mentality that he brought to this team. They also lose Bryn Forbes. He had the fourth best three-point percentage in the NBA last season. I mean, it's what he does. He's an absolute sharpshooter. Not that big a loss, though. He's a complete net negative on defense, so I don't think it's that big of a loss. Two just role players here uh, in Milwaukee. They bring in uh, a couple guys. The big deal, they bring back uh, Bobby Portis on a super cheap deal. Dude, I thought Bobby Portis was going to cash in this offseason. I thought he was going to go somewhere and get some big money. Signs back on a two-year $9 million deal. Um, he really showcased his value uh, in the ECF against the Hawks. You know, put up 22 points in Game 6, 12 in Game 7. Uh, but I'll get started, Carson, with their biggest addition, I think, in the offseason, and that's Grayson Allen. And I think he is going to be an invaluable member uh, of this rotation as the season goes along. He's switchable, he's versatile, he's competitive, and he's going to knock down open shots. And that's basically all you need to do to be a nice cog in the machine here in Milwaukee. Kind of fits uh, a lot similar to like a Pat Connaughton here in this rotation. Guys like that matter. He's going to play hard on defense, he's going to be able to switch on to other guys, and he's going to hit open shots. Last season, uh, 10.5 points per game, three boards, about two assists on 41 39 uh, splits, about 40% off the catch. I think it's a huge addition, um, and I think he's just going to be a really nice piece. 
Milwaukee has had so many issues uh, over these past few seasons with with injuries to their guards, and Grayson's just another nice one to have here. DiVincenzo go down. Uh, you have Pat or Grayson Allen to step up. If Drew Holiday goes down, you have a couple of guys that can competently you know, facilitate in an offense. So I think I'll start off with Grayson Allen. I just think he's a really good free agent addition. He'd be valuable on any other team, but in a team like this where he doesn't need to have the ball in his hands when he's off the bench, just needs to play a really simple, defined role, I think it's a really good pickup for a, for a championship team. I agree. I think that he can easily supplement what they lose with Bryn Forbes, and I think he's a better all-around player. Maybe he isn't as brilliant of a pure shooter, but you said it. The competitive instincts, the grit that he brings defensively, I think, is a guy who's going to fit into what is a winning culture in Milwaukee. And so I think that that is definitely a win for them. That's a good add. And maybe you look at Grayson Allen and hear that he's the best addition of an offseason for a team and you think, well, they didn't exactly hit any home runs, but this is the reigning champions and they didn't really need to hit any home runs. So I think the George Hill addition is really nice as well. That's a guy who can run your second unit who last time we saw him in Milwaukee led the league in three-point percentage and just a cerebral veteran guy who can play multiple roles, who can be that off-ball presence with the starters because of the pure shooting, but again, can also run that second unit. And then outside of that, not really anybody who I expect to totally crack the rotation who they picked up. Maybe Rodney Hood, if he consistently figures things out. What? That surprised me. You don't expect Semi to crack the rotation at all. We're talking about the same Semi Ojale here? I mean, like somebody's going to have to... What, who else supplements? You think all the PJ minutes go to Bobby now? I've got a take on that. I think that PJ is a legitimate loss for them, though. And I don't really think you can understate how important he was to them in the postseason because regular season sure he was just a guy who they picked up and who offensively clearly although he was never a guy who really had it in that sense had lost something he wasn't knocking down his signature corner threes all that reliably he was at around 34 percent from deep on the year I think and defensively wasn't that kind of game changing player game to game but when it came to the postseason and when it came to the finals and they needed to have their maximally switchable, versatile lineup, and they couldn't play Brooke Lopez as much, P.J. Tucker became a fundamental piece of that team. He was crucial to their success because he enabled them to play Giannis at the five and have success. He was incredibly effective switching out to the perimeter and can obviously battle with anybody on the interior. And if you just look all around at how he impacted winning for them, in the playoffs, they were eight points per 100 possessions better when P.J. Tucker was on the floor. Defensively, he held opponents 6% below their average field goal percentage. Like, he was phenomenal. So, you're not going to look at his four points a game or whatever and think, boy, that's a lot to lose. But defensively, I think it is. And I do think that all around, the defensive ceiling of this team is going to be an interesting pivot point for them. Because, offensively, I think that we kind of know what they are at this point. They were a top five offense last year. We know they're going to play up tempo. They're going to push in transition with Giannis as much as possible. They were top five in threes made and three-point percentage last year. Like, the formula that they have there, as long as they have shooters around Giannis, is not going anywhere. And I think that they have the potential to be the best offense that we've seen in Milwaukee. And last year, they were by offensive rating, but the whole league was better offensively. But just with the scoring and playmaking combo that Drew Holiday brings with, obviously, the electrifying scoring of Chris Middleton... Great unit there no matter what. And defensively, they were unreal in the playoffs. One of the most remarkable defenses that I can remember seeing in recent years. But in the regular season, they took a step back there. They were ninth in defensive rating, whereas the last couple years they had been a top three defense. And that was probably the stronger side of the ball for them, although their offense was elite as well. And 
really the major factor in that is that this is a Bucks defense that by design really hemorrhages threes and allows teams to take a bunch there because their priority is funneling guys into that paint and saying you can challenge Brooke Lopez, you can challenge Giannis as a help defender, and you're not going to get quality looks off. And that's been what they've been built on for several years. It just happened to be that last year they didn't guard that three-point line very well, and they allowed not just the most made threes, but they allowed teams to shoot the second-best percentage in basketball from three. So if you're going to allow that, you can't have an elite defense no matter what. I think that that is an area in which they'll improve because I think part of that is just tough luck with teams shooting that well on them. But I do think the P.J. Tucker regression is going to be real for them, losing him on the defensive end. Maybe we don't see it in the regular season, but in the playoffs, I think that's going to matter. And maybe you can say, well, they're going to add Dante DiVincenzo, who's a versatile, effective defender. But he's not as versatile as PJ in that he's not a guy you can switch out to the perimeter or the interior. He can guard one through three and battle there, but he doesn't bring that same level of just otherworldly versatility. So maybe we stretch out the PJ Tucker point a little bit there, but I think that that matters. If you have title aspirations, which they obviously do, those are the kind of losses that do matter. Even though I think overall the depth is as strong as last year, I think George Hill and Grayson Allen are both better basketball players than Bryn Forbes, but that's the loss that kind of sticks with me. No, I mean, I think you highlighted, and I think the key word here is the defensive ceiling. I wrote down that exactly. Can they reach a new defensive ceiling with their additions and the adjustments they made in the playoffs? Because the biggest question to me is, are they going to continue running Giannis at the five and try that during the regular season? Or are they just going to save that as their, you know, secret weapon X factor for the playoffs? Because I think if they do try it during the regular season, I think they probably have, once again, like the league's best defense, because I don't think the Bucs are damn near unstoppable when they run that. It's the perfect fit for them. But it does matter. There's nobody else on this roster. Like, you'd have to count on Bobby Portis to be that piece, and he can't. He's a hard, like, I don't want to crap on Bobby Portis. He's not a horrible on-ball defender, but he's nowhere near what P.J. Tucker was. He leaves his feet a lot. He's prone to, you know, bite on a bunch of pump fakes. It is a huge loss. I don't want to overstate it. Um, But that's my big question is, are they going to try this during the regular season and try to work the kinks out with Giannis at the five? Are they going to save it? And again, I think you addressed the biggest question. When it does come playoff time, can they run that, you know, while still playing a Brooke Lopez, while still playing a Grayson Allen, a Dante DiVincenzo, a Pat Connaughton? Because they're just not, they may not be able to because they don't have that versatile, switchable defender. Well, I don't think that Giannis at the five is going to be a regular element for them in the regular season. Because I think that Coach Bud has his Mm -hmm. issues, but there came a certain point where I think even he realized that that was their best option defensively. And, I mean, just the numbers have regularly supported that. You can just see the versatility, the athleticism, the quickness, and all of that. But I don't think that they have much of an incentive to really prioritize that because I think that they believe they can sort of kick into gear in that respect whenever is needed. And Brooke Lopez is certainly one of their five best players. They have a formula that works during the regular season, and they're going to win a whole lot of games mm-hmm. no matter what. So maybe we're just nitpicking here, because I think they're a fringe top five defense. I think they're a fringe top five offense. I think that they're certainly a top five regular season team in basketball, just like they have been. And I was a Bucks skeptic for a couple years because I had my issues with how Giannis's game projected to the postseason. I had my questions about who that elite perimeter late game shot maker could be for them. And there was a resounding answer maybe to the Giannis doubts in the specific matchup we saw in the finals last year. The perimeter shot making, sure, maybe Holiday and Middleton can do that regularly enough in the aggregate. But at the end of the day, those don't really matter in the regular season where they're beating teams by 10 points a game, just like they've done for the last three years. So other things that interest me about this team 
is just going to be sort of the combination of those new role guys. Because, like you said, I love the Grayson Allen addition. I think offensively, he's certainly a better player than Pat Connaughton. I think defensively, he's certainly a better player than Bryn Forbes. And he had several games in Memphis towards the tail end of last year where he exploded offensively. And I just think he can do a little bit more off the bounce than a Bryn Forbes. Not a ton, but a little bit more because Bryn was literally just catch and shoot and defensively made himself almost unplayable in big moments. Not the only swing guy I like on this team, Carson. There's there's another young fella. I think your boy from uh, last year's draft, I think Jordan and Wara could step up and play a really valuable role in this rotation. Again, I've got questions about guys here near the that could crack this lineup, like Rodney Hood. I don't know how much he matters. He's like the 12th guy here. I have to think that Wara gets more burn than him, than Ojale, than you know, comparable run to George Hill. And Wara's a bucket, dude. He just is a blazing catch-and-shooter. Uh, we saw it in the Olympics especially. What, he dropped 30 points on uh, uh, for Nigeria on, like, Team USA's head? He balled out. I I just think he's got a smooth stroke, and if they give him burn, man, the way Giannis collapsed defenses, the way Drew Holiday can get inside, the, uh, the attention that Chris Middleton draws towards the middle of the lane, I think there's going to be a lot of shots for Jordan and Wara this season if they give him burn. And he can swing a game, man. Like, game to game, Jordan and Wara can bury you four threes you know, and have a big swing quarter that, you know, ends up winning you the game. I think he is, there's not a whole lot of young talent here. Obviously, there isn't for most contending teams. But if there's a guy I expect to take a major leap on this roster, I think it has to be Jordan and Wara. I think he's a good candidate. And I think he is a guy to watch on this team because so much is certain with this group. Mm -hmm. But maybe the back end of that rotation, as far as especially the regular season goes, is a little bit interesting to guys like us. I think that Nwora has a case because of the pure shooting. Like, he was 45% from deep last year in a pretty meaningless regular season game. We saw him drop 34. We saw him have one explosive game in the Summer League this year. And he was crazy inefficient in the Summer League. But also, that's not a role that he's ever going to play in the NBA. He's being asked to be a lead ball handler, to be a playmaker, to create off the bounce. And really, all the guy can do is shoot off the catch or shoot in your face. And he didn't even have a good shooting summer league whatsoever, which I don't expect to be an issue for him going forward. So there's some shot creation there. He got a nice little step back and he is just a dead eye. He actually even made a couple nice passes in the summer league. My concern is defensively, he's a little slow footed and you're not going to ask him to play a huge role. So I think he probably is a rotation guy. I think you're right. And I think that we saw it trending in that direction towards the end of last year through the summer because the guy has been balling. But He's never going to be a guy who can play in their last five or anything like that. They're closing five. I mean, are there any other like young guys in this rotation that you really like? So maybe a little bit off the rails here. But I think that Mamadi Diakite is a guy to watch. Logan, I know you're a huge fan. And the reason for that is the guy just has a lot of impressive tools. And if you paid attention to the G League last year, which you probably didn't, but that's what we're here for, averaged 18 and 10, was outstanding there, shot 7 of 14 from deep, which is something that we saw little flashes of in college, just that jump shooting touch, but not at that level, certainly. And then that's not going to be his primary weapon, but physically he just has tools. He's a good, fluid athlete, off the roll offensively, big time lob threat, explosive, defensively, energetic, versatile at 6'9", moves his feet well, aggressive shot blocker. So I don't know if he's developed enough offensively, but I like him more than semi. I mean, very different roles, but if you need somebody to be that switchable big or to play the four alongside Giannis, he's not going to give you 20 minutes a game. He's not going to play probably in big time playoff situations, but I just like him. 
And I think he's more talented and more exciting to me than several other options in the depths of this roster. I'm so glad you brought up Mamadi. Like, I, I didn't even think to bring him up because I didn't expect him to crack this rotation immediately uh, after their free agent signings. But you mentioned a lot of it, dude. There were some times in Bucks games when he was getting burned last year that you could squint and, and you might go, is that Giannis? That was a great play. No, I mean it, dude. When you talk about his ex- explosivity rolling to the rack, you didn't see a lot of what I have seen in Mamadi's game at the G League level, at the NBA level, we never saw showcased back at UVA. Uh, the things that you mentioned off defensively, that's where I think he'll shine immediately. Gene, he's a great, extremely defensively aware. Um, he's a great help side uh, shot blocker. I think he could thrive alongside Giannis. Like, any guy that comes out of Tony Bennett's system at UVA is going to be smart defensively. Mamadi is just another member of that tree, but he's got upside. Like, he runs the floor in transition. That's why I say, like, you could squint and maybe see Giannis. In transition, man, this guy finishes stuff uh, explosively. Like, he's relentless going to the rack. I, the shot, I'm definitely questioning. I question. You didn't see a whole lot of his shooting touch at UVA. You saw him hit that one buzzer beater uh, in March Madness. I love it, though. I mean, I think if Diakite cracks this rotation and they give him burn, maybe he's that swing defensive asset when it comes playoff time where he could be getting 20 minutes a night as a wing playing that three or four spot and just contributing. Like, again, I don't expect him to become a star. I don't expect him to average double-digit points or anything like that, but he can play a very valuable role as a rim runner, as a, you know, sometimes catch-and-shooter, but more as an impactful rotational defender and help side, uh, and help side shot blocker. Yeah, we may be digging deep here. We may be a little bit optimistic. I don't think there's a 20 minutes a game upside for him this year. I don't think so. I just think this is a team that knows their top seven very well, top eight now with the addition of a George Hill, who, by the way, is going to be really valuable to them. Like, they wanted a guy for this backup point guard role last year, and they brought in DJ Augustine, Mm -hmm. which, by the way, I thought was really going to work. I thought it was great, and he sucked, and it was a disaster. And George Hill, you know for a fact, can do that because he already did it for you two years ago. They also brought in Jeff Teague. You're right. They did bring in Jeff Teague after Augustine, didn't they? And boy, wasn't that fun, Logan, watching that guy play minutes in the NBA Finals. No, I wanted to put on like a pair of blacked-out sunglasses so I could stop watching. I think that we made our position pretty clear on that throughout the finals and just throughout the postseason in general. God, Jeff Green is so bad. Jeff Green? No, Jeff Green's pretty good. (laughs) Jeff Teague, excuse me. Their names sound similar. So I think Diakite is a guy who can basically be a Mm matchup presence. He's a guy you can put in very specific situations. And even though he's, I want to say 24, he's not young, (laughs) he's... Not 24 in essence because his game was so raw and we're seeing that continual development. So he could be interesting. I had a similar prediction as for the Bucks as you did. I would say that they're the two seed. I have them going 57 and 25. All of that is liable to change by a game or two, by a seed or two, because I just know that collectively I'm going to project the NBA to have a record above 500 because I... Every team has talent, like legitimate talent, and I just can't pick anybody to win 12 games. But at the end of the day, we have to end up with an even record. So I'll go through and revise all this once we've gone through all 30 teams, but that's where I have them right now. So after this, Logan, it gets very interesting because while we pretty much know what we have with the Bucks, the team that I have second in the Central Division at the very least, we have a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fascinating elements at play, a lot of new pieces coming together. And I'm going to assume you have them here as well. But who is in that second spot for you here? 
No, I got Cade Cunningham, you know, taking the Pistons to 50 wins. Of course, I got the Chicago Bulls in my two spot. Dude, I think, first off, I just want to say, I love what Chicago did this offseason. I know we briefly recapped this in our free agency podcast, which, I mean, hey, you can go check out if you're if you're hanging out here. Why don't you go peep it? The Bulls killed this offseason for a multitude of reasons. The biggest one that we mentioned back when uh, they made the Vucevic trade, um, or excuse me, when they made the DeMar DeRose and Lonzo Ball signing was it justifies the Nikola Vucevic trade a little more. Also, if you if you really want in-depth stuff on the Chicago Bulls, just go watch this guy's video on them. Let me just say, if you're a subscriber of NerdSesh, you probably did, because thank you to all of you who showed out, because that is our most viewed video ever by a lot. So a lot of you may have heard kind of what I have to say on the Bulls, but anyways, proceed. No, go watch it again. Go watch it a second time. Go watch it a third time. Put it on repeat. Please run our views up. We need to monetize. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, seriously, though, I, I love what they did this offseason. Like, some of these, it's a lot of money to shell out, but it makes them, it gives them a super high floor and a super high ceiling. And I want to start off offensively because we're going to, I want to dissect the Bulls completely. First off, just offensively, you you highlighted a lot of this in your video, but you have three ball handlers to share the load. It's not just Zach Levine trying to go out there and get his own. DeMar DeRozan, 84th pick-and-roll percentile. Lonzo Ball, 69th pick-and-roll percentile. Zach Levine, 82nd pick-and-roll percentile. If you need if you need points, get Vooch to set you a screen. Get Patrick to set you a screen. It's going to be easy money. You know, the thing that I think maximizes this offense, Carson, is if Zach Levine can dedicate himself to moving off ball and DeMar DeRozan, that is what's going to completely open up this offense. Levine just didn't have that opportunity. He always had to have the rock in his hands last season. A lot of isolation stuff, a lot of using screens. Like When the, when the ball is not in Levine's hands, I just need him to be dedicated to moving to open space and trying to get that shot off. That will fully unlock this team. But the beauty of it, I already mentioned the three ball handlers. Lonzo's probably the odd man out. You know, you're probably going to lean on Levine and DeRozan to run your offense at most points. Those other three guys are 40% catching shooters. Patrick Williams, in his rookie season, maybe couldn't do a whole lot. He had a little bit of a post game, had a little bit of creation off the dribble, was a 39.8% catch-and-shooter last season. Nikola Vucevic, a 39.9% catch-and-shooter last season. Lonzo Ball, 40% off the catch last season. Like, I, there's just... They don't have to have the balls, ball in their hands to be productive. If Levine and DeRozan are collapsing defenses and getting defenders inside, it is going to be a three-point bombing fest for the Bulls, and they're going to run you off the floor. And my final piece on the Bulls' offense, I'll let you take over here in a minute, Carson. Late in games, you have two cold-blooded killers to go and get you tough buckets. Zach Levine, we all know how talented he is. 92nd percentile in isolation last season. DeMar DeRozan, 96th percentile in isolation. And you see it. DeMar's post-game, his footwork, his difficult shot-making. It's not smart for most games, but late in games, when those are the only shots that you're going to get, he's good at making them. Like... I love the Chicago Bulls offense at all three levels. I, I just love what they've done this offseason. I love this starting five. You know, I don't want to talk myself into like some crazy kind of like, you know, Steelers winning the Super Bowl, Bulls winning the finals, but I see a really high ceiling for this team and especially this offense. Yeah, I think that the Bulls have a lot of potential this year. And what's so fascinating is, and I talked about this a lot in that Bulls video, it was almost the central theme is that they took together all these components, all these guys who historically I've had my issues with coming out of the draft. I was not a Lonzo guy. I said he's going to be an average NBA player because he doesn't have that high-level scoring skill set that is essential to be a great point guard in today's NBA. It's a scoring position. Look at the great guys who do it. 
And for a few years, I was very right about that. And now he's found a different role, mm-hmm. but it's not what he was projected to be. And some of you Bulls fans may take issue with me saying that, but I just don't think Lonzo is a point guard in that he is your primary ball handler 90% of possessions. I think that that's plain to see. And I'll justify that a little bit further in a second. But then you have a guy like Levine, who, although I think has always been so skilled as a scorer, so athletically gifted, defensively there were so many issues, playmaking-wise, it's just never come naturally to him. So in the role that he was put in, even in his incredibly efficient scoring season last year, I was like, he's not elevating the players around him Mm -hmm. in the same way that true offensive superstars do. He's an electric scorer, one of the best in the league, but it's nice to have more to your game than that if you're going to be asked to be a primary ball handler as he was last year. And then Vucevic, I had my defensive issues with, and really, if you're a defensive center who's a liability... Tough to be a true star unless you are Nikola Jokic, Carl Anthony Towns, where you're just on another planet offensively, and I didn't think that Vucevic was quite in that tier. And then DeRozan, this is a guy who for nine straight years, his team has been worse when he is on the floor than when he sits, statistically. And yet, I think he is the key to this whole experiment. I think he is going to thrive, and I think we very well may see the best version of DeMar DeRozan that we ever have. In 20... 17-18, there was that MVP buzz for him a little bit because the Raptors were really good. This was early on in the season, but he was scoring like 27 a game, I want to say. His playmaking was better. He was actually shooting well enough early on in that year. I actually don't think he was scoring 27 a game, but all around he had improved, and the mm-hmm. Raptors were great. I think this is a much more refined, better, all-around basketball player, and I think that you touched on it with the value of the shooting around him because this is a guy who was suffocated by the spacing in San Antonio last Mm -hmm. year. He played on the team that made the least threes in basketball. And if you just look at the wings alongside him, who he's playing big minutes with, it's Keldon Johnson, very spotty shooter last year. Lonnie Walker even, I think was below 35% from deep on the year. DeJounte Murray, he didn't have a stretch big. LaMarcus tried to do that a little bit for however many games it was, 28, I think. And then he has Jakob Pertl, who's not even going to attempt to do that. So you go from that for a guy who, as you said, is an expert at collapsing defenses, at getting into the mid-range area, is just an incisive pick-and-roll playmaker, and you give him Nikola Vucevic and Lonzo Ball and Zach Levine alongside him on the wings, I just think we're looking at a completely different ceiling for him. I think his playmaking, we're going to see even more. He averaged seven assists a game last year, had the highest assist-to-pass percentage in all of basketball, really good decision-maker, control, doesn't turn the ball over. But it's not just that that's going to be amplified. Scoring-wise, it's going to be easier for him. Hopefully, he settles for one less mid-range jumper a game and gets all the way to the bucket because he's so great there. He's so good at getting to the line. And then you're just looking at a maximized DeMar DeRozan. That, to me, is the potential that he has this year. And that's what I very much hope to see unless Billy Donovan and the Bulls can't get the hierarchy right here and they confuse themselves with the fit a little bit. And that's one of my rare concerns. But I think if they do this right, all these guys can complement each other in a very unique way that will drive them to win a whole lot of games. And and something else uh, that will complement them, uh, I think you hit it on the head for DeMar I just I kind of feel like I undersold Vucevic a little bit. You know, I treat him like he's a, he's going to be a straight up spot up shooter. Vucevic is awesome in the post too. Like another aspect of this offense is if you put one big on Vucevic in the post because you, you know, again you can't switch him off, he's going to get a bucket. If you bring two defenders because you're afraid of Vuce bodying you down there, guess what? You're going to see playmaking out of Vuce there. Like I am just so enthralled 
at the potential of this offense. Patrick Williams in the dunker spot now because Vooch can space the floor. Get him a screen roll to the bucket. Those opportunities are opened up. Vooch is just a pick and popper. I, I am... I'm so excited. I am just so excited to just watch this play itself out because I'm so confident in it working. Um, I got some stuff on the defense. Is there anything else you want to touch on offensively? I've got a, a good bit more offensively because I think that you touched on it right there. Vooch is going to be an awesome partner out of the pick and roll for DeRozan and just another guy who makes this offense work because you have a lot of guys who are gifted with the ball in their hands, but several of them are going to have to be effective mm -hmm. off ball as well. So just having another guy who can read the defense, who can make good decisions there, who can have those exchanges with, if it's a dribble handoff, if it's just giving him a post touch and he spots the open shooter around him or whatever, he's just another guy who's going to take this offense to another level because of that, because of his versatility as a scorer. And then you talked about Levine transitioning to that more pure scorer off ball role. I talked about this in my video, but if he's willing to do that, and if he doesn't want to try to force himself to be that primary ball handler that he's never naturally been, he has every skill set to excel. 48% shooter off the catch from three last year, 97th percentile cutter. Explosive athletes and great shooters can do a lot off ball with quick hitting offense who can handle, who can break down defenders if they're willing to embrace that role, which I think he will be personally because I do think Zach Levine, despite his flaws, wants to win basketball games. And so this is going to take adjustments from all these guys. The one thing that still stands out to me is the utilization of Lonzo Ball because so many Bulls fans responded, hey, love the video. Everything was great, except you don't understand Lonzo Ball's game and that's not how we're going to use him. And even Lonzo has maybe hinted at that a little bit in saying that he felt that this was an opportunity for him to be himself effectively. Mm -hmm. The thing that I don't understand is how you watch Lonzo play his best basketball ever unequivocally in a role that so naturally suits him because... He's not that high-level scorer. He doesn't have that dynamic in-between game that you need to be a really good pick-and-roll creator. He made nine floaters last year, shot 37% on those, was 40% for mid-range, and made one basically every other game, was 31% on even pull-up threes. And meanwhile, he's shooting 40% from deep off the catch, and still, we saw the tremendous value of his passing. This was a stat that I cited in the video, but Lonzo made the 10th most passes in the NBA while ranking 155th in average dribbles per touch. He doesn't have to bring the ball up every possession for you to feel the impact of his passing. If he's sitting there on the wing, you get him a touch, somebody closes out on him too hard, boom. He swung that ball, boom. He's hit whoever is in the dunker spot and is sitting there as a lob threat. This dude is going to excel in that role. And by that, I'm not saying you don't have any possessions where Lonzo is bringing the ball up the court. Because absolutely, he can spot things early and often. And in transition, by the way, obviously, mm -hmm. let him push, let him excel. He's phenomenal there. But even in the half court, there are moments where he just brings the ball up the court and then boom, he spots a cutter. He sees something that other people wouldn't and he makes a great pass. But in today's NBA, primary ball handlers exert pressure on defenses. They are one and the same. Mm -hmm. Great scorers, as long as they can play make competently, are great primary ball handlers. Look at the guys who drive the position. Damian Lillard, Steph Curry, Luka Doncic. These are the point guards of today's age. Russell Westbrook. These are guys whose scoring drives their playmaking. Russ wouldn't be a great passer if he didn't collapse defenses every play mm -hmm. because he's a freak athlete. And so that to me is what DeRozan is. He's a guy who is more than a good enough decision maker who can make the smart read every time, and who is actually going to get your offense kick-started by coming downhill. Because 
we are not really looking at the days of throw the ball to a guy, let him go to work as much. If you can intertwine that scoring and that playmaking mm-hmm. into one guy, I just think your offense is best served by that. And I think that DeMar DeRozan is that guy. And I really think Lonzo Ball is a really good basketball player. Somebody commented yesterday that he's the best basketball player in the league. I was a little skeptical of that, but you know what? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe you're a big Lonzo guy. But so that to me is the thing. It's DeRozan being that primary guy, Lonzo being that secondary guy, Levine being that secondary guy, because the versatility is so valuable there. But DeMar DeRozan is not a good off-ball player. That was another thing I saw people saying, like, oh, he's a great off-ball slasher. This is the thing. A lot of people don't have the time to watch basketball teams that aren't their own, which I understand. But he's a point guard. That is what he is at this point. And even when he was in Toronto, when he was a pure scorer, he wasn't a crazy cutter. It was a different era of basketball a little bit where you threw him the ball on the wing and he went to work and he broke people down. He's never been a elite cutter or anything like that. He brings you no floor spacing as a shooter, which is painful. Like, you can't really have that, especially when you're looking around and you have an elite shooter in Lonzo Ball, you could be sticking off ball, an elite shooter in Zach Levine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I touched on all this in the video, but I wanted to come out here and elaborate on it because it just stuck with me how much people disagreed with me. And you can have, again, possessions where Lonzo is that guy for you, where he's that primary ball handler. He just can't be the number one guy, in my opinion. And that would be a limiting factor to this offense because then I don't know what you're getting out of DeMar DeRozan. I mean, like, no offense. You know, I'm like an educated basketball fan. So I just thought that was kind of redundant. I don't, if you expect Lonzo, if you want Lonzo Ball to be a number one, you've been banned from Nerd Sesh. Sorry, we're going to kick you out. Uh, nope, no, no, never mind. <laughs> I, I take it back. You guys, you guys are welcome back in. No, bro, that is such a foolish. Come on, Bulls fans. Wake up. And dude, like, Levine's a good, like, Levine's a really good off ball player when he when he's given the opportunity. Like, Stupid take. That's a stupid take, bro. I'm going to keep it a buck. A lot of people calling me Stan Van Gundy in the comments section. I'm telling you, dude, this has been the sticking point. This is like probably a quarter of our comments, if not more, are about the Lonzo issue. That's why I'm trying to explain it. He does not have the skill set that is conducive to being a great primary ball handler in today's NBA. Danilo Gallinari says Lonzo's not the best in the league. It's Georges Niang. I mean, that's an excellent take. I think I'm going to invite this guy on Nerd <laughs> Sesh. Um... I, I think I, you're exactly right, Brett. DeRozan and Levine need to be the runners of this offense. But let's talk about... Oh, no, go ahead. What's up? I would just say even within that, I think DeRozan has to be above Levine because I don't think DeRozan has the same off-ball skill set. I think he's a much better playmaker and decision maker. I think DeMar DeRozan is your point guard here, if that's the term you want to use, and everything kind of revolves around that. Late in game, who's getting that last shot? Zach Levine, I think. He's a better pure scorer, unequivocally, in my opinion. Okay, solid take. I, so you think DeRozan should anchor this offense? Well, I want to talk about anchoring this defense for a second. And I think Patrick Williams, like, wow. People threw a lot around a lot of comps for Patrick Williams when he came out. And, like, I don't know, man. One of them was the, the Kawhi Leonard comp. And I think it's, it's, a little, it's a little too soon for me. But, damn, is he scary defensively, man. Like, uh... I got a couple puns for you guys, so stick with me here. He's not moving product, but he's a trapper. You know what I'm saying, fellas? You know, he makes, he makes life hell on ball handlers bringing the ball up. He's not, he's not, he's not, I'm not talking a magazine. This kid's an absolute hustler. Come on, bro, that was solid, whatever. No, seriously, though, Patrick Williams, I think, has the skill set, the tools, the potential to be an all-NBA-level defender. You know, like, the the instincts, the awareness, that's where it starts. The, the hands, the... 
Carson, I showed you a, a play earlier in class today. James Wiseman defended by him. Wait, hold on. No, no, no. In class, we were hitting the books, Logan. Oh, <laughs> I, would, I would never be watching NBA highlights in class. I was totally, like, studying and taking notes. All right, so I was in an ambiguous location showing Carson basketball highlights, and James Wiseman is backing down Patrick Williams in the post. 7-1 James Wiseman guarded by 6-8 Patrick Williams, and Patrick punches the ball one time. Wiseman catches it. Wiseman has a step on him, goes up with the ball for the shot, and Patrick Williams has already recovered and poked that ball loose. Like, he has—you said this, Carson. These are not my words, but it's a very great observation— Patrick has some of the most active hands I've ever seen in the sport of basketball. He pokes balls loose. He jumps into all kinds of passing lanes. He deflects shots. He has just innate shot-blocking awareness, which is where, because I think Nikola Vucevic definitely holds this defense back, as you alluded to earlier. I'm not saying Patrick should be your, you know, go-to guy uh, defensively, you know, and be your anchor and rim protector, but if Vucevic can just hold guys, Williams is an awesome help side rim protector. Like, I love what he does defensively, and I just think he brings them up another level. Like, Levine is a decent defender. He's still got a lot of flaws, especially that that noggin of his, just staying aware on the court. Lonzo's an excellent defender, but I think Patrick Williams can be a game changer. Like, he's not going to go out there and get you 20 points a game. He's probably going to be around 10 a night, but defensively, he can change a game night in, night out for this team, getting them out in transition, opening up those opportunities for him, deflecting passes. Like, I don't know, man. I am super high on Patrick Williams. And again, I think in a situation like this offensively, because his game is not developed there, where he can just play a 3 and D role right now, catch and shoot, rolling to the rack, and playing hard-nosed defense 1 through 5, is a dream scenario for Patrick Williams. And I think he can be the anchor of this defense for Chicago this season. There's going to be a lot of responsibility lying with Mm -hmm. Patrick Williams this year, particularly on the defensive end. I'm going to just briefly talk about his offense so I can get my Patrick Williams thoughts off here because uh, he's an interesting offensive player. And I was not a Patrick Williams guy as a draft prospect. I hated the pick. And then, as I've said before on the pod, the next day I saw a video of him working out and he just looked more fluid, more smooth. He was comfortable putting the ball on the floor. And I was like, okay, this may be a little better than what he put on tape in college. But he loves getting into that mid-range, high post area, as you said, There is no room for that in this offense. So his role is going to have to be, as you said, maybe a role man a little bit, maybe in the dunker spot occasionally, but for the most part, spot up shooting. And in summer league, he looked confident, man. And he was going out there trying to be a star. And he shot the ball well. He was 44% from deep and over five attempts a game. And so even though last year he was really efficient from beyond the arc, it just wasn't his preference. He wasn't totally comfortable. If I'm not mistaken, he took 1.83s a game. So that number has to be higher. That has to continue to develop in his game. And that's going to be his role because they have their big four and they have their primary one-on-one creators and that's not going to be his role. But defensively, he has a huge burden on him. Absolutely huge because defense is almost as fascinating with this team as offense because you can look at this group and say they have several guys who have really not regularly defended a high level in their careers in key roles, but also there is something of a defensive culture in Chicago and that they were 12th in defensive Mm -hmm. rating last year. Billy Donovan is just a really good defensive coach. He's never had a below average defense in his entire tenure in the NBA statistically. So there's a culture there and they're athletic. Like you can Mm -hmm. look at DeMar DeRozan and Zach Levine and say those guys aren't good defenders play to play. But they are athletic, and there is crazy length on this defense. If I'm not mistaken, there is nobody with a wingspan shorter than six foot nine in this starting lineup. And then they have their 
legitimate guy who can check the top perimeter initiators in Lonzo Ball, who I think is going to do really well in that role. But what it leaves is, who is that guy who can check really legitimate star wings? And that responsibility is clearly going to fall on Patrick Williams. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot to ask of a second-year player. Because the thing with Pat, if I may be so casual with him, is that his hands are amazing. His anticipation is amazing. He's a pretty strong guy, and he can be that good help side rim protector. The only question for me is, is he quick enough to stick with some of those great perimeter players? Because that was another issue I had with him defensively coming out of college is I thought he's a little bit of a tweener. You know, he really is like a four in that respect, mm -hmm. and he has to guard great wings. And I'm not saying that he can't because I think he is so good positionally. He's so good making plays on the ball. And some of the great wings in basketball aren't crazy explosive athletes. To guard KD, you don't have to be a crazy explosive athlete. Well, you're not going to guard KD well no matter what. But just having that size, that length, those hands, that strength can be enough to do it well enough. So I think that that's a lot that falls on him. I'm not super confident just because of his age. And I'm not super confident about DeRozan and Levine giving effort play to play every time out there. But I think that they can be average. This was a really good rebounding team last year. Fourth best in basketball and rebounding percentage. Vooch is not a net positive, but he's long. And if they're good enough on the perimeter, they can survive. So I don't know. Maybe this is the thing that puts a ceiling on this team. Do you think, would you turn to Lonzo at all if it's a bad matchup for Patrick Williams? As far as guarding great wings? Yes. The thing is, to me... If it's a team that glaringly has a lead wing above any sort of guard, maybe. But the problem then is you're shifting Patrick down a position, so he's still guarding a wing. I guess probably not a guard because you just put Levine and DeRozan on those guys. So maybe if it's the perfect matchup, but I don't think that's going to be a regular option for them. I think Lonzo is going to be checking guards. Pat is going to be checking wings. Obviously, Vooch is going to be protecting the rim, and then they just put Levine and DeRozan wherever they feel most comfortable with, wherever the minimal threat is. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I, I do want to elaborate on a point that you made, though. You talk about the athleticism that DeRozan and Levine bring to the table. That's why they're not going to be hard defensively, because the issue with Levine, again, this is why I think it's so much better. Again, they, they respect him to play a major role on both sides of the ball. With Lonzo and Patrick Williams into the fray here, if Levine can just competently stick off ball with a guy, you're fine. Levine's good at that. And he's good at checking guys when they drive off ball. The issue is when Levine has to close out on a guy or Levine has to stick with a guy and fight through screens. That's when Zach Levine gets himself into trouble defensively. If you were trusting him to be a competent off-ball defender, I think it works. And athletically, again, though, he can jump into passing lanes, him and DeRozan both. I just don't think... I, I think that they're going to be really good defensively. I want to ask you, Carson, are they like... Are they top 10 this year? Like, they were close last year, and I think they've improved by picking up, like, Lonzo, Alex Caruso, Derek Jones Jr. You're shaking your head, though. I don't think this is a top 10 defense. I just think when you have three guys who have not proven that they can be plus defenders in the starting lineup, which is what they have, by the way, it's tough for me to be crazy optimistic. Mm -hmm. What I am hoping for is that they get to that league average spot. Because I agree with you. Caruso is good enough defensively to where, no, he's not going to close with any units just because they're going to want the shot making of both Levine and DeRozan. But he helps there. You lose Thaddeus Young, who was an overall plus defender, just a really good all-around basketball player, good playmaker, and did a lot for this team. Obviously, they've replaced his talent. Mm -hmm. 
but just it's a little bit of a bummer that maybe doesn't get to be along for the ride now that they're going to be really good. So I don't think that they're a top 10 defense. And initially, I was probably a little bit lower on this defense. And I do think that Patrick Williams is the swing guy because I don't think we can overstate how big the burden on him is going to be. It's a Mm -hmm. lot to ask of a second-year guy. And he has great moments there. He has great hands. But I don't know. It's just a lot to ask. So other than that, anything else you want to say about the defense or should we just move on? Because I think that depth is interesting with this group as well. And particularly one guy in Kobe White, who, by the way, as I said in the video, is yet another candidate who, in his initial role as he was presented as a prospect, maybe I didn't love because it was, he's a point guard, he's a lead ball handler, and my thought has always been, well, he's a great scorer, and when he's consistently knocking down from three, he can be that lethal off-ball shooter as well, but he's a guy who can go get you a bucket, and now, he's a sixth man, You just let him cook because previously I thought they need to make a decision between him and Levine. They can't work together. And now I no longer feel that that's the case. I think that he can thrive in the sixth man role. I think he'll be one of the better scoring six men in basketball. And then you have, you mentioned Caruso off the bench, Derek Jones Jr., who as an eighth guy is solid enough. I mean, it would really be nice if he could hit 35% of his threes instead of 30, but I don't think that's happening. And then even deep into the bench. A couple guys who I like with Troy Brown Jr., who had a really bad year, but was exceptional in the bubble, does a lot of Swiss Army knife things, as we love to say here on Nerd Sesh, can handle offensively, can play make, defensively is versatile. And then Io Desunmu, I'm optimistic about him. So I just think this is a good team top to bottom. I think that the top four is in a different class. What? This dude really said the bench and didn't bring up Tony Bradley. Yeah, that's correct. Downright unacceptable. I'll have you know. I'll have you know. Tony Bradley held opposing big men on ten percent uh, under their average field goal percentage last season. Carson, I don't care. Tony Bradley's not an impact player. Tony Bradley's gonna get minutes, bro. Who was running back up five for this squad? Yeah, probably Tony Bradley. He'll play like ten minutes a game, like he did in Utah. And he'll clamp up MFs when he gets those ten minutes. This dude really didn't bring up Tony Bradley. I'm disgusted. So I want to ask you this then. What are your expectations for Kobe this season? Because I agree. I think there's a great situation for him. There's a ton of banter going on here in the comment section. I love it. Danilo Gallinari is going off. Um, he, he brought up the question of potentially maybe moving on from Kobe White and trading him for maybe a more competent backup big if you think it lacks at that spot. I think they like bench scoring, which is why I think this is the perfect role for him. Again, Kobe White is not a guy that likes to share the basketball. And again, with people around him like this, and a Derek Jones Jr. and a Alex Caruso who are largely going to be there to clamp up and play defense, I think this is the perfect situation for Kobe. I think that, yeah, like you said, you go out there and trust him to get buckets. So I guess I have two questions for you on this Kobe White. Three. Let's let's go three. I'll start with number one here. Do what do you expect out of him like scoring production wise? Can like twenty a night, fifteen a night? Like where are you expecting Kobe? How's he gonna score twenty a night? He just gets buckets. He just drastically improves. They put him in the starting lineup. They ship Lonzo out of town. How many do you expect him from him a night? Probably like 14 a game, I would say. I don't think he plays more than 25 minutes. That's probably even on the high end mm-hmm. just because I think these starters are going to play a lot because they're really, really good. But I think that he can be very productive in those minutes because he is going to be able to primarily run the show. Okay, my second question for you then is, do you think he's going to be a six-man-of-the-year candidate? I think he will be... In the conversation, I think he'd be a top five guy. And he did progress last year. His playmaking got better. And he's got a lot of tools as a scorer. 
So I think he'll be in the conversation. I don't think he's going to win, though. My third and final question for you then on Kobe. Do you think, looking up and down this roster, do you think they should move on from him for any position? Like if they get a... If there's a glaring role uh, in this roster that you think they need and could trade for by getting rid of Kobe, do you think they should pull the trigger? No. I don't think that you're going to get commensurate value because if you're trying to fill a bench role, because you're starting five is set, unless you're trying to upgrade from Patty Mack, if I may be Mm -hmm. so casual with him again. Yeah, Patty Mack, that's what I call Patrick Williams now. You're not going to find a better bench player than Kobe White, not to mention that he was the seventh overall pick and just mm-hmm. wrapped up his second year and has some really impressive traits. So I was in the camp last year of long-term, maybe this isn't going to work. Maybe he's not a full-on franchise building piece, but I just think he's in a different role now. He's in a different spot, and they don't need him to be, again, a lead ball handler. They just kind of need him to go get buckets. Hey, then on that, as a bench unit as a whole, do they hold this team back at all? That's an interesting question. I really love their sixth and seventh man. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a really good top two off the bench. Not super deep beyond that, but no, I don't think so significantly. I think this is a really good all-around team. And in fact, I think this is a 50-win team, Logan. I have them as the five seed. I think they win 50 games, and there are things that can hold them back. If the fit doesn't gel, is Gallo cracking up in the comments over there? Dude, I think Gallo needs to stick to hooping and like not try to play GM, bro. He just suggested they trade Tony and Kobe for Mason Plumley. Gallo, I love Mason Plumley. Like you will genuinely not find a bigger Mason Plumley guy out there. Oh my goodness. When he starts throwing the flashy passes, when he's rolling to the bucket and getting up in the air, I love it. But that is not good value for Kobe White. So I'm sure you said five seed, fifty wins? That's correct. And the five through eight conversation in the East to me is going to be tough. They're really good. All four of those teams should be really good. And the top four, obviously, is going to be even better. That's why they're the top four. But yes, I believe in this offense enough. I think it's going to be a top 10 offense. And I think defensively, they will be average. Maybe 50 is a little high. Maybe I should have gone 48. But I just think there's so much talent here. So much talent. And offense is what's going to dictate winning games as long as they can be solid defensively. And I believe they can get to that level. There's so much shooting. There's so much ball handling. So much playmaking. So many guys who can score with the ball in their hands. The depth is good enough. And if they can just figure out the fit, which I think that they should be able to, I believe. I'm a Bulls believer. How about that? I concur for the most part. I split that difference that you laid out 58 and, or excuse me, 48 and 50. I went with 49 wins for the Bulls and basically five through eight seed. Closer to five. I don't expect them to end up at that bottom spot. Um, yeah, I mean, I agree for the most part. But honestly, dude, and I, I want to get your opinion on this as well. I said I wasn't going to do this, bro. But just like I am so damn intrigued at what this team is going to do playoff time. Like I, nobody would have get. Let me preface this: nobody outside of this guy right here would have projected the Hawks going to the Eastern Conference Finals last season. Like, is it really out of the realm of possibility for maybe an Eastern Conference Finals run for the Bulls? Well, there's a few components at play here. First of all, you're going to have a healthier Eastern Conference, presumably, than last year. And you're going to have a better Eastern Conference. You're going to have a completely different Miami Heat team. You're probably going to have a better Boston Celtics team. You're going to have a healthy Brooklyn Nets team, presumably. The Bucks are going to be effectively the same group. Sixers, we don't know. But... I don't think it's very likely whatsoever. And I and I don't think there's a world in which they beat the Brooklyn Nets. And I think that the Bucks have too high of a two-way ceiling probably to be denied in a matchup like this. 
do you even think they'd win a playoff series? I mean, it is a tough draw. If you get that five seed, you're going up against a four. I mean, it's actually it's kind of a raw deal, whoever you draw, if you're one of the low seeds out east. Do you have them winning a playoff series? As of now, I would say no. But, again, these decisions aren't necessarily final. I just think they need to prove that they can do the things that we are asking of them. The guys who historically have not made the necessary adjustments in some cases are going to make those necessary adjustments. They can be competent defensively. There's just a few more questions about them than other teams to me. But also, I think overall I'm an optimist. And I'm excited and fascinated by what this team can do. So, I think that's probably enough on the Bulls. We went for like over half an hour there, but... Honestly, maybe the most interesting offseason in all of basketball and one of the most interesting teams, if not the most interesting team in all of basketball as well. Now, we've got a team representing a state that loves its basketball, Logan. Indiana Pacers. Well, for me at least, I'm supposed to let you dictate. If you don't have them third in the division, I'll be very interested, but I think they're a clear third here. Yeah, I have the Pacers here, and we can go half an hour on the Bulls. We're going to spend like 12 seconds on the Pistons, so uh, maybe a little longer than that. Um the Pacers are a really interesting team, and uh, also in an ambiguous location. Definitely not, you know, my class where I'd always be taking notes. Uh, we discussed the Pacers briefly. Uh, Carson and I agreed this might be the best bench in the NBA. Drop that might, man. It is the best bench in basketball, and probably presuming health last year would mm-hmm. be the best bench in basketball for the third straight season. Yeah, damn right. And I. I I'm going to run down the guys here, and I think the I think the biggest question, Carson, for me about this Pacers team, I have two real big questions. Number one, it's you know how fast can T.J. Warren get back from this injury and actually contribute? Last time he was fully healthy, man, this guy put up 50 points in the bubble. He's a buck. He is a freaky good scorer when he's on. Obviously, I think it's going to take a little while for him after he gets back fully to get back to that level. That's my one big question. My second big question is, who steps up? and, you know, defines himself as the second guy on this team. Because I think Sabonis is the clear go-to guy offensively. And it's not like I love every piece that they have around them. Brogdon, Lavert, Warren, Turner. Just nobody has stepped up and become that second reliable piece. Like, Brogdon's that guy right now. That's the swing thing for me here in Indiana. I don't really have anybody pieced out. Again, I think it's going to rely on what they get out of these young guys in the bench. And I'll get into that here in a second. I don't see that, and that's ultimately why I just have them being a middle-of-the-road team, a really talented, hard out against whatever team they play each and every night, but I don't see a huge ceiling for them because they don't have that second star. That being said, damn right this is the best bench in the NBA, dude. You run back TJ McConnell, the consummate floor general, Carson Breber's favorite basketball player of all time. Great, great active hands. He's great on ball despite his size. Great at stealing stuff. Jeremy Lamb, spot-up shooter near 40% last year. Justin Holiday, great 3 and year. And those are the guys that we already know about. To me, Carson, the guys that make this interesting are the rookies that they just picked up in Chris Duarte and Isaiah Jackson. Because Duarte, I loved him coming out of the draft. I knew exactly what... You know, he could do he averaged 18, 4, and 4 in the summer league. He's an awesome three and deer just off the bench. He's an aware defender. He jumps in the passing lanes. He aggressively, dude, like no matter who's on him, he's trying to block every shot when they drive into the lane. And the scoring ability is the swing thing with Duarte. He's not like the most hyper-athletic guy. A lot of his scoring inside is predicated on a pump fake, getting a guy to jump and putting up, yeah. Yeah, he does have a smooth stroke. Catch and shoot. A little bit of a stop and pop game there with his three in transition, too. Uh, he showcased that in Summer League. Um, and then on to Isaiah Jackson, dude. Isaiah Jackson's going to be a beast in this rotation. I think he games Goga Batadze out. I liked Goga last year. Goga just to me is like a Vita Zubach. 
He's a good defender. He's good on the boards. He's a really good guy with putbacks. Doesn't do anything else. Isaiah Jackson is special. And, like, again, it's a really defined role. It's really simple. Blocking shots, rim protection, rim running. Did I say something that was, was puzzling? Special. I just... Not the first word that comes to mind for me with Isaiah Jackson. I think Isaiah Jackson is special, man. His freaky long arms allow him to be a really like versatile defender out there on the perimeter when guys are shooting. He blocked a couple threes where guys just said, oh, it's a big to twitch on to me. I'm just going to pull this. Isaiah blocked it. Carson, he tied the summer league record with seven blocks in one game uh, on the Washington Wizards. He put up uh, what averages of like 14, 7, and 2 on 63% shooting in summer league. Like... Again, it's a really defined role, but when there's an open lane, Isaiah Jackson is throwing that thing down. When you are driving on him, he is going to send that shot back forcefully. I think he's the backup five for the Pacers as the season moves along. And honestly, maybe a hot take here. If Miles Turner can, continues to struggle with his injuries, maybe they move on from him. Like, I don't know, Brett. Again, it's a really defined, simple role that a lot of guys can do well, but Isaiah Jackson is one of those guys that does it at a super high level. Absolutely. I think that he's going to be a great backup energy big immediately because I think he can do the two things that you outlined. He's going to be able to protect the rim and he's going to roll the bucket and he's going to play hard. So I love this bench overall, top to bottom. There are 10 guys to me who need to play here Mm -hmm. who if they don't play, I'm sad for another team because they don't have this guy in their rotation. And I think that the issues are going to have nothing to do with the bench this year because the bench is going to be exceptional. And even last year, I mean, the bench was considerably outscoring people. It was just it was just the starters who could not carry their part of the load there. Now, you do lose a couple of relevant guys from last year's team and Aaron Holiday, Dougie McBuckets, but you are gaining so much more just by getting back players who are injured and through some of those additions, like through the draft, picking up a couple of really nice rookies. But there's so much returning talent here that was not at full strength last year. Jeremy Lamb played 36 games. Karis LeVert played 35 games for the Pacers. TJ Warren played four games, as you hinted at. And they no longer have Nate Bjorkren, who everybody apparently hated, who's gone after one year in the NBA when the team was just below 500. It's not like he won 10 games. And you have Rick Carlisle, which is a huge upgrade. So this is by no means the 34-38 and 38 team that we saw last year. I thought they were among the mm-hmm. most disappointing teams in basketball last year. But part of that was due to maybe circumstances outside of their control with injuries and whatnot. You disagree? Well, no, no, I agree completely. It's just that the Pacers were so weird in the stretches that they... It's like it wasn't a persistent issue all season long. It was a streak of two weeks where they couldn't score the basketball, where Malcolm Brogdon and Sabonis would just take 30 shots and shoot 30% from the field. And then there'd be a different stretch where they just would allow 140 points a night. It was just puzzling last year. Super weird. And what's funny is it leveled out to them being average on both ends. They were 14th in offensive rating, 14th in defensive rating. Which, the year before that, they were just kind of a better version of the same beast. Maybe they were better defensively. They were a top 10 defense for a couple years. What? The same beast? Yeah. Yeah, the same. eh. Okay, fine. The same (laughs) solid basketball team. But they were a better version nonetheless. So I think defensively, I probably lean towards them being closer maybe to that top 10 mark again. Maybe they're hovering around average. And offensively, maybe they're around average again. I don't know. I think that they're going to be better, though. The talent is here. Like, you have four guys in this starting five who could reasonably average 20 a game. Maybe not all on the same team. But last year, you have three guys who did average 20 a game. And Sabonis, Brogdon, and Levert. And TJ Warren, last healthy season, averaged 19 a game. To me, though... 
in spite of that talent, there is just too many cooks in the kitchen here. And some decisions need to be made because if you look at this personnel, this is not like the Bulls where you can argue there are highly complementary skill sets. These are guys who need the ball in their hands a lot and who are not overly valuable off ball without it. Levert needs the ball in his hands. Not a good catch and shooter. He needs to effectively be your primary ball handler when he's out there on the floor. TJ Warren, 40% shooter from deep, sure, but he doesn't like to do it. He doesn't like to stand there all day and be a catch and shooter. He wants to go get buckets from the mid-range, throw up those floaters, and it makes him fun, but it makes him less malleable to the guys around him. And then those are probably the third and fourth most established guys in Indiana because Sabonis had the second most touches in basketball last year. So much offense has run through him. And then Brogdon can be a killer off the ball, can kill people with his shooting, but he's a point guard first and foremost. So the question for me is not, you know, is there enough talented one-on-one scorers? It's how do those guys mesh together? Do they have enough shooting on the wings? Do they have enough versatility? And maybe there's a path for them to get there, but I think it requires some maneuvering of this lineup beyond just these are our five best guys. That's who we're throwing out there. So I, I want to, I want you to elaborate on that a little more. Does that mean that you want to like, you want to stagger these minutes and play with the bench a little bit? You just want to play with the roles? Do you want to move on from guys? So I was about to elaborate, oh. and now I will. I think that TJ Warren is the odd man out here because although he's an electrifying pure scorer, the playmaking is not there, the off ball ability is not there. The defensive ability is not there. And I think that Brogdon and Sabonis, we know what they can do out of the pick and roll. Sabonis obviously is not in this conversation. He's their best player. And I am so optimistic about the best moments we see from Levert. So I think that they have a couple options. They could trade TJ for just a really solid 3 and D guy to insert into that starting lineup. But maybe you're not going to get a player who's as talented. So the other option, I think, is you have three great 3 and D wings, or at least good 3 and D wings, on your bench in Justin Holiday, Chris Duarte, and Jeremy Lamb. Just throw one of those guys into the starting lineup and let TJ cook with the bench because there's not a lot of bench players who can guard TJ Warren. So that is probably my favorite solution. Go let him compete for sixth man of the year because right now, there's too many cooks in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Even last year, without TJ, we saw that Levert and Brogdon didn't complement each other and there was just a little bit of weirdness there. So talent is not the only thing that matters. Coaching is going to matter, and their ability to mesh is going to matter a lot. So that's kind of a key issue for this team. I think we both agree the bench is going to crush. You bring in a super pro-ready guy in Chris Duarte, he's going to be fantastic. TJ, you already said it. He's just one of my favorite players. And Jeremy Lamb, really productive when he's out there. Like, it's just 10 deep. Outstanding. Outstanding. I'll pose this question to you, because I think this could be an interesting storyline this season, and maybe an interesting dynamic in how high they can fly, because you talked about how you don't see that second star alongside Sabonis, that second true star. Is there a world to you in which it's not Malcolm Brogdon who gets there? Because I feel like at whatever he is, 27, we know what he is, but where Karis Levert ascends that level. That's a good question. You definitely wouldn't be Brogdon. It's a tough question to answer, man, because Levert is so damn skilled. Yes. You know, I mean, you were a big... You wouldn't shut the hell up about Karis when he went down with that injury. You wouldn't shut the hell up about him. Did you watch him play those first 11 games or whatever in Brooklyn? He's an artist. Yeah, I mean, Levert has the skill set to be a really dynamic shot creator and just marksman. It's just, it's just going to take him... 
man, it's a it's a dilemma, bro. Because if you think Lavert is that guy and has this superstar ceiling, then the answer would be you got to move on from Brogdon. And what I mean by that is like they just can't coexist. Like. It, I don't mean that Brogdon isn't an awesome off-ball player. We've seen him do that. We've seen him be a really valuable off-ball player in Milwaukee. But he now that he has ascended to this status, he's going to want those touches. He's going to demand those touches. And Brogdon doesn't have that superstar ceiling. Brogdon's a really good player. I love the guy. I'm a, I'm a who. Of course I love him. But if you do think that Lavert is that guy, then I think you got to move off Brogdon. you just got to say, all right, Karras, you're going to run this offense. You're going to go get buckets, get us 25 a night, and we're going to let you grow your game. Do you? Like, you seem like you're kind of... Are, are you staking your claim in the Karis LeVert superstar sweepstakes? I am not. Because I think that you put it well. He is a phenomenally skilled offensive player. He is unequivocally their most talented perimeter player on the offensive end. And if you look at his raw production last year in Indy, it's super impressive. Average 21-5, and five, but... When it comes to the efficiency, when it comes to fitting in with the flow of an offense, that's where he can start to drop a little bit in the Carson Brebber rankings. Because you look at the shooting splits, 44, 32, 82, 53.5% true shooting. His bag is so deep. Like, he, at times, out there looks like bigger Kyrie Irving, all right? I'll say it. The dude's handle is dirt nasty. He controls that ball so well. He's super deceptive. He's got touch. He hit 49% of his floaters last year. He'll put up turnarounds. Like, he is just a bucket. If you go to a park and watch NBA players go at each other, and we don't have analytics or a large sample size of games to see, okay, this is how this guy impacts the team defensively or whatever, and guys aren't given 100% on that end because they're just out there playing, really extended situation to put you in. But basically, I'm just saying, if you're just watching guys and thinking, that dude is a hooper, Karis LeVert is at the top of the list. But the problem is that's not the only thing that matters when you're playing NBA basketball. And there's a major issue with the consistency of his perimeter shot. He's below 34% from deep on his career. He's not good off the catch. He's a better off the dribble shooter, no doubt. But kind of a bummer when you can't at least be productive as a wing just sitting there with your hands up on every other possession. And because of some of the athletic limitations in his game where he doesn't create those crazy high probability opportunities at the rim. So... I don't think he's going to be a legit star this year. I think he's going to score 20 a game. I think his playmaking is pretty darn good and improved a lot. But I don't know if he's even the second best all-around player on this Mm -hmm. Indiana team. I don't think he was last year, and I don't know if I expect him to be this year because Brogdon does so many other things well out there beyond just scoring the basketball. So all around, it's just kind of a mixed bag for me with Indiana. I don't think it can be worse than last year whatsoever. I think they're too talented. I think that they're going to be healthier again. And there's a lot of intriguing pieces here. And I love the bench, and I love Rick Carlisle as a coach. I have them going 43-39, and 39, and finishing right now is the nine seed. I think if they're going to be a play-in team, no doubt, if they fall below that, I will be immeasurably disappointed. But I don't know if they have that super high ceiling, although I think that that floor is very high. And there's always going to be questions about the Sabonis-Miles-Turner fit. I don't even know what to say about that at this point. Like, you know... When Miles Turner gets traded, we'll talk about it, okay? Because we can't say, well, it's a little bit awkward in this way and that way every three months if they're not going to actually do anything about it. So, moot point, in my opinion. What's your official prediction for the Pacers? I have them going pretty similar to you, 41 and 41. Uh, I have them as basically somewhere between the 10 to 8 seed. I think they're playing, like you said, really high floor, really low ceiling. I don't – I'd be surprised if they got into the playoffs, but they're a lot to – 
to be competitive in, in each and every game and uh, when it comes to the play-in. All right. So with that, Logan, we move into a very different tier of teams. The God tier, some might say. The Central Division has probably two of the weaker teams in basketball this year. Bright futures, maybe. Top picks in this draft, sure. But are they going to win a lot of games this year? No. So I'm interested in seeing who you have higher out of the Cavs and the Pistons here. Who is in that four spot for you? I've got the Cavaliers. Do you the same, or do you think Cade Cunningham's just going to you know ball out? I have the Cavs as well. All right. Um, let's get it started with the elephant in the room. The biggest swing thing to me about the Cavs this upcoming season. Well, actually, no, no. Let's actually get the big elephant out of the room, and those are those two contracts that they signed. We talked briefly about them in free agency. The market in one is new. Uh, they get it, Jared Allen for a five-year, $100 million deal. We've kind of... Can I just add, this is while they have Kevin Love on the books for four years, $120 million. The Cavs are a fascinating franchise. Yeah, they're really geniuses when it comes to sending out contracts. Five years, 100 mil for Jared Allen. We've kind of covered that one extensively. He's a role guy, really good role guy. Just way too much money for him. The Mark Henry one is interesting. I can see it from both sides. They signed him to a four-year, $67 million deal. And I agree with you, Carson. While you have Kevin Love on the books, while you just paid out Jared Allen, while you just drafted Evan Mobley, it doesn't make sense. Why would you pay out all this money to your front court when you have your piece of the future and you just paid another guy like he's a piece of your future? It doesn't make sense. The other side of the Laurie Markkinen deal is that you are getting consistent catch and shooting, and that's something that was not on the roster at all last year. I mean, this was literally the worst three-point shooting team in the NBA. It's what held them back. They were horrid. So I can see, like, if you if you just wanted to fix that, I get getting Laurie Markkinen. I still don't like the contract, but again, he's a reliable catch and shooter. That, to me, is the big thing, Carson. Will this team shoot any better? You bring in a nice catch and shooter in him. You have. <laughs> you got Dylan Windler down here. You got Denzel Valentine. Like, I just. And, like, like you may be sitting here saying, oh, Logan, why did, why did you mention those guys instead of, like, Colin Sexton and Darius Garland? Well, that's part of the issue. This offense was directionless last season. None of these guys did anything, like, during offensive sets and they didn't have the ball. They just kind of stood around, man. It was like you were playing three on three with your boys and you're kind of gassed. And you just stood there and you watched your boy dribble it out and put up a contested elbow jump shot. Really specific scenario, but that's kind of what happened in this Cavs offense. Like, Garland and Sexton did not do anything off-ball last season, which is a part of the issue. Nobody did anything off-ball. There's still a lot of bad shooters in this lineup. If you're trotting out a lineup of Okoro, Mobley, and Allen, your three-point shooting woes aren't going to go anywhere. So, to me, I just... I don't know how much better the Cavs can get if they didn't get better in the overall shooting department. You had one good catch-and-shooter. That's my big gripe with this team and what they did this offseason. I think that's interrelated with what you started with, too, which is that they decided to go very big, and they decided to pay big money out to big gentlemen. And uh, look, I'm not a fan of the Jared Allen contract, and it's not just because I think, as you said, he has a skill set that a lot of guys around the NBA do, and he fills a simple role in that he rolls the rim, he protects the rim, he does so very, very well. But there's only a couple guys in that category who I'm going to dish out big money to. Like, beyond just the pure otherworldly superstars, I'll play, I'll pay Clint Capella. If I'm in Atlanta, where his rim protection is so essential, where I just love how he fits with Trey as a dynamic role, man, that makes sense to me because he changed their fortunes defensively. I don't even know if there's a lot of spots where I'm paying Clint Capella, though. And he's on a different level of defensive impact than Jared Allen 
in my opinion, just as far as the sheer rim protection, although Allen is very good there. So I don't like that. But the main reason I don't like it is that, to me, you're forcing Evan Mobley to play out of position. And maybe he's a four when he comes into the league. I don't object to that idea that at 215 pounds, you don't want him going up against Joel Embiid or Nikola Jokic or Carl Anthony Towns. Fine, fair enough. But he's not going to be 215 pounds for that much longer. In a couple years, hopefully he's 235 pounds. Hopefully he's bigger and stronger. And when he's at that point, he has a potential to be the best center in basketball at some stage, not in his third year, but like down the line once he has that physical frame because he has the potential to do everything on the basketball court effectively at a high level. And defensively, once he's at the point where he can't get bullied by anybody, there's nothing he can't do. He's an incredibly natural shot blocker. He's super switchable. He's super smart. He has incredible hands, incredible instincts. So to look at him and say, you have to play on the perimeter. You have to be a floor spacer. First and foremost, that's going to be an element of his game. He's going to be able to stretch the floor, but he's also going to be a great role man. He's going to be a guy you involve in dribble handoffs. He's going to be a guy who is a scorer and a playmaker out of the post. And to take that away, to put him in a situation where he doesn't have shooting around him, where there's a center around him, it's not good for his long-term development. And it's a five-year contract. So this is the foreseeable future for Evan Mobley, and that bums me out. Although I still think he's going to be an absolute stud no matter what, as I said in my most recent video, which you can go ahead and check out. I just, you're exactly right. It's so stupid. Why are you clogging up and taking these lanes away? Like, Carson, what happened to just letting guys break their bread in the NBA and learn? Let Mobley get cooked by Embiid a few times. Let let Mobley get sauced by Nikola Jokic. Let him get bullied down there. It's going to make him stronger. And if it doesn't, well, he's not cut out for the league anyway. Like, Anytime we bring up this Jared Allen contract and drafting Evan Mobley, it just enrages me because it's such a stupid decision. It's one of the all-time dumb decisions in basketball, and I think we're going to see that play out this season. Yeah. I don't think it's a good contract whatsoever. and Just the fit. Just the fit, bro. It doesn't make sense to take Mobley out of that five spot. I concur. And again, I think you could justify it for a year or two, but not for five years. And I'm in the pool with you in that you throw him into the fire no matter what. And again, with their contract situation, who is taking that Kevin Love deal? Who is taking that Jared Allen deal? Once you're tired of Laurie Markkinen because he brings you nothing but spotty spot-up shooting, who's going to take that contract, guys? How are you going to pay your young guys? I'm, I'm kind of, I'm going to say the P word. I'm kind of pissed. You said the P word. I'm kind of pissed. I kind of want to walk off set because I'm so mad at the Cavs. Do it. It's great television. Just go ahead. I, I can carry the show for a minute or two if you need to take a breather. I'm going to do it. I'm do pissed. It. Do it. Logan is leaving the set, ladies and gentlemen. And I understand his frustration. So I'll touch on the guy you mentioned and Laurie Markkinen because I think you're totally right in that this is an overpay. I'm speaking to nobody right now. Logan's not here, but I, I'm pretending he's here. Because you just paid four years, $67 million out to a bench big man. And look, my trajectory with Laurie Markin has been a complicated one. I didn't like him as a prospect. And then start of his second year, I was like, whoa, this dude can do some stuff handling. And then he was just relegated to being effectively a spot-up shooter and he's just a little soft, and he doesn't really have the post game. But at the end of the day, you know, he's seven feet tall. He just shot 40% from deep. He can handle. I'd like to have that on my team, just probably not for this value, maybe not in this situation. But what I do like is, with him in the mix, 
And by the way, I have no idea what to expect from Kevin Love. I don't know if he's going <laughs> to play basketball. I don't know why either party would want him to play basketball. But guess what, buddy? If you're not willing to be bought out, which, by the way, is absurd, you can retain a majority of your money and just go to the place you want to go? No, you have to keep every cent? This weird guy. Weird guy, Kevin Love. But I'm not even going to really figure him into this picture because I don't know what his mm-hmm. role is. What I like about the marketing addition is with him, Allen, and Mobley, you can have some combination of those two on the floor at all times, and that empowers Mobley to have some of those center minutes. With marketing mm-hmm. alongside him, clearly he's the center, and so there you get to see the rim protection, what he can do defensively, guarding the pick and roll as that primary interior big, what he can do offensively as that interior center point of the offense. So I think that that's nice, and I think that Laurie Markkinen's a good basketball player. I don't like the contract, and yeah, I'm just overall displeased with the situation Evan Mobley has been put in because we're going to see. He has his brilliant flashes from the perimeter. He has his moments handling the ball, shooting the ball, and doing all that stuff. That's part of what gives him such a tremendously high ceiling, but it's just not the position that he was meant to be put in for an extended period of time. And by the way, J.B. Bickerstaff coaches this team, which is automatic minus five wins. I had to look that up real quick because I was like, how does this guy still have a job? And again, like, I I know I've already made this point, dude. I just... (laughs) Thinking about Cavaliers basketball makes me just so mad, but I I just don't want to see this offense come out and look like it does next season, Carson. I cannot stand to watch Darius Garland and Colin Sexton pointlessly dribble around at the top of the key, waiting for something to open up, waiting for just... Just doing it themselves, man. And I don't know. J.B. Bickerstaff is the ultimate interim coach. Last year was your interim. <laughs> last year was his was his tenure. Well, two years ago when he came in mid year, and then they gave him a full year, and now you're giving him another full year. For what? What did he do well last year? His dad was a good coach. Good for him. I just love nepotism, don't we all? I don't know, bro. I just. I want to see the Cavs do better because there's so much talent on this roster. Because I think a big thing that we're going to see this year, Carson, I'm surprised you haven't we haven't elaborated on him, and I, I think we need to. Darius Garland is going to be a beast this year, all right? Carson did another video on this, Cat. If you want to check out the Mobile League video, check that out. If you want to check the Garland video, highly recommend that as well. Dude, I expect Garland to go 20-7 and seven this year. Uh, maybe like, honestly, I wanted to make my prediction officially like 24 points per game. I just expect massive things from Garland. Again, you mentioned this on our la- on um, on it may have been your video with Mobley. The pick and roll connection with him and uh, Garland and Mobley should be absolutely filthy. Garland is going to continue to become a better basketball player, and I just don't want it to be in a pointless offense. I don't want this to just be a directionless. Oh, great! Darius Garland goes goes and puts up twenty four and seven on a twenty win team that does nothing that has no nothing else going for it. Garland can be a part of a winning situation. That winning situation just has to be instilled, and I don't think J.B. Bickerstaff does that. That's my point all this. We need a culture change here. We don't need a talent change. The talent is here. Your building blocks of the future are here. We need to stop making dumb front office decisions, and we need there to be an actual coach to coach this team. It's just frustrating, Carson. It is just frustrating. I agree. But nevertheless... I think we're going to see Evan Mobley have a really good rookie year. I think no matter what, he's going to score 12 to 14 a game. I think you're going to see what he can do defensively just as a freak. I think you're going to see offensively the versatility. And even if he is out of position, the guy is too special to fail. And Darius Garland is going to take another leap. Absolutely. In year two, 
he was one of the most productive guards that we have ever seen in that stage if you factor in, I believe it's 40% shooting from deep. There was some stat I found where only him and Steph had ever done it. I think it was actually just this many points per game, this many assists per game, this percentage from three in year two. That's a legit stat, all right? That's not a doctored stat. And even just the amount of points per game and assists per game of this list, I'm remembering now as well. I did that video a while ago, but I've got the memory of a young man. Like, the worst player on that list was De'Aaron Fox, or maybe out of retired player Stephon Marbury. So the precedent for his just raw production already, super impressive. But you threw out that 20-7. and seven. He basically did that after the All-Star break last year. His last 24 games, excluding one in which he came in just for like 10 minutes and he was injured and he had missed the previous slate of games and the subsequent slate of games with injury. Last 24, 19.5 points per game, 6.5 assists per game on 47, 41, 86 splits. He has so many tools of star guards, such a creative handle, dynamic handle, quick, very quick, but also changes pace superbly well. Great touch on his floater, really good shooter, could shoot from deep a little bit more probably, and that's part of maybe the directious, the directionlessness of this offense is that mm-hmm. he and Sexton, and all of their great three-point shooters, they're not forced to shoot a lot of threes, which would be better for this offense as a whole. But just so much gift there as a score. And then playmaking-wise, to me, if you don't think that Darius Garland is the clearly better talent between him and Colin Sexton, you haven't watched enough Cavaliers basketball because the playmaking that he brings to the table is next level for his age. His poise out of the Mm -hmm. pick and roll, the variety of passes he can deliver, he just is like a prototypical star guard. If he could just get to the line a little bit more, get all the way to the bucket a little bit more, his efficiency would go up and he would just be an all-around more effective player. But I love Darius Garland. I love him, and I think that with him and Evan Mobley, long-term, no matter what, this franchise cannot screw this up because those are two cornerstone pieces to me. Evan Mobley is a future All-NBA guy. You can bet on that right now under my name, and Darius Garland is a future NBA All-Star. And with those two guys who can complement each other's skill sets out of the pick and roll, with a game-changing defensive player like Mobley, and an offensive engine like Garland, you're going to win games. Not this year when they're very young, but down the line, yes. Putting my foot in the ground, yes. I'm not going to push back on your all-NBA takes because I think I think there's substance behind them. I think there's substance behind Garland and Mobley doing that at some point down the line. Shout out down the line. Tennis show, Blaze Radio. Pretty good stuff. This guy hosted. It's pretty good tennis stuff. Um, my thing, though, Carson... My issue that I take with that statement is the the fact that you said that the Cleveland Cavaliers couldn't possibly mess this up. Again, this is the same franchise that is now paying three big men, what, like, uh, quick maths right here. $800 billion a year. Yeah, dude. I'm pretty sure that's bigger than the United States GDP, okay? They're paying three big men that. Seriously, bro, they're they're paying three big men like $110 million a year. Uh, That's not right. That's wrong. Like $80 million a year. Still. Three guys that play the same position and they can't mess these guys up? I don't know. I think there's a slim possibility that the Cavaliers could either, one, mistakenly move on from these guys and lose faith in them, or two, just mess them up because that's what the Cavaliers do. Very pessimistic from Logan Camden. What a bummer. You hate to see it. I do think that this is a year where you kind of see, all right, are they just going to straight up give the keys to the offense to Garland over Sexton? Because I still think Mm -hmm. Sexton can excel as a pure scorer I honestly think his best role long-term in the NBA, and I've said this before, is just best sixth man in the league. Like, just let him go cook bench units, get buckets. And right now, to me, there's just still not a clear enough hierarchy there. Garland is going to be better. 
no doubt, than Sexton. And he's just a better overall team player and offensive engine. So I still think that we're going to see growth from him. We're going to see a great debut from Mobley. We're going to see Jared Allen, talented basketball player. Colin Sexton, talented basketball player. Like, it's not just going to be insanely depressing. There are a couple of interesting, maybe, X factors on this team, though. And one of them, I think, is a young guy who we haven't talked about all that much, given how prominently he was drafted last year with the fifth overall pick, and that is Isaac Okoro, who I think is going to be really interesting because he was not one of my favorite players coming out of the draft. In his rookie year, there were good moments, there were bad moments. He finished the year strong over his last 12 games, averaged 16 a night. In summer league was good, 16 a game on 59% shooting from the field. And we saw some flashes from him as the year progressed where he didn't look as much like a straight-up 3-and-D wing as he did a ball-handling guard, like making decisions out of the pick-and-roll, putting up the floaters every once in a while. And he didn't have crazy natural touch. He wasn't crazy efficient, but he does have solid instincts as a passer. He can handle the ball well enough. He's only 6'5". It's not like he's some super big wing. Either way, though, that's not going to be his role on this team. There just isn't room for that with what the Cavs have with Garland and Sexton. So I think that it's going to be really interesting to see how he defines his role this year because I still think he can be an explosive cutter. He can attack and transition. Hopefully, he can take strides on defense from year one to year two. I thought he had some great moments defensively as a rookie. Consistently wasn't always there, but really, when guys come into the league as rookies, that's just what happens. In college, he was a great defender. I thought he projected as a really good defender, and I'm optimistic about him there. I think he's the best point of attack defender on this team, but the swing thing is going to be the shooting because he was 29% from deep last year, even in summer league, even in that hot streak last year. The three ball was never something that fell. He doesn't have a natural looking fluid motion there. It wasn't good in college. And so that's problematic for him overall. And it's problematic for this team because like you said, when you finish dead last in three-pointers made and second to last in three-point percentage, or excuse me, vice versa on that, you're just not going to be a good basketball team no matter what. It's going to be tough to even be a competitive basketball team. But what are you expecting from Okoro? Do you expect development significantly in any spot? Or are you thinking that he's going to be kind of a bust? Or what's sort of your overall take on him? I expect to be disappointed. Um, I didn't see enough positive signs out of the three-point shot last year. And you're right. I don't want to paint this picture that Isaac Okoro is a completely untalented basketball player. I think you laid out some really good scenarios in which he could, A, one, develop, and two, thrive in. He's a surprisingly good playmaker and ball handler. Like, when they give him screens, he's shown an ability to find open guys, to get to the bucket. You need to be just a good spot-up shooter right here. Like, the Cavs need, like, a Macau Bridges. Guy can just play defense and knock down open shots, cut to the bucket when necessary. If Okoro's shot doesn't come along, I don't want him on this team. I want him somewhere else. This team needs a shooter on the floor in the starting five. If you, I, I already said this on this podcast, but if you were trotting out Allen Mobley and Okoro, you were going to be sorely disappointed with the output that you get from this offense. No matter how many minutes Laurie Markkinen gets a night, you're going to be disappointed. Okoro specifically, I see room for growth. He's a hyper-athlete, and he's a really good defender, dude. He, he still is. But he's 6'5". Like, I don't... He's not going to be that prominent of a lob threat in the league. He's not going to be that great of a cutter. Like, like you know, you know what I mean. He'd be like Josh Hart cutting to the rack. <laughs> Sweet. No, I don't agree with that because he's a great athlete. Yeah, he is a great athlete, but he's 6'5". Like, he goes up on people, bruh. I don't know. 
to me, the cutting thing for him has to be about the willingness mm-hmm. to do that, the cerebral aspect of understanding, reading those situations. Because athletically, I think he can be an explosive cutter. Yeah, so I mean, like there are things that Okoro can improve on. I don't like his fit here. And if his shot, if he's not shooting above 37% at the end of this season, yeah, it's kind of a high mark, maybe 35. We'll go easy on Isaac for now. If he's not shooting over 35, I think you just have to cut him loose. What, do you disagree? It's complicated. And by the way, let me just say, I already think that is a good cutter, actually. 37%, I don't think there's any world in which he shoots 37%, <laughs> Logan. I don't know that there's a world in which he shoots 35%. And what's tough with Okoro is you know, he does so many things well, and I think he understands basketball. I think he understands where he should be offensively. I think he mm-hmm. understands where the ball should be. I think defensively, he's locked in, and he's got tools there. He's just missing that one trait that is ultimately more important than anything else Mm -hmm. given his game and his skill set, and that's tough. I don't know if I'm willing to move on from him after this year because he's not Jarrett Culver. You know, he does things well out there, but this is a big test for him. So overall, you know, the Cavs, they're not going to be great. They have talent undeniably, Mm -hmm. but it's a lot of young talent, and offensively, They're not going to be super dynamic. They were among the worst offenses in basketball last year, 28th in offensive rating. So even if they progress there, even if the shooting's improved, even if Garland's improved, even if Mobley introduces a new element, marketing's good, all that, you're coming from the 28th spot. And then defensively, I think that they're going to have their issues. They were 25th in defensive rating last year. And although I like Okoro and I like Allen as sort of that Mm -hmm. point of attack guy and then that final line of defense as the rim protector... Sexton and Garland just have their issues there. And Mobley, to me, as a four, it's going to be weird because I love his switchability and his capacity to guard the perimeter. But every game, when he has to be like your primary wing stopper, because if a team has a great guard and a great wing, Okoro is checking the guard and Mobley is checking the wing. And sometimes that means guarding Kevin Durant or Kawhi Leonard. Well, probably not this year for Kawhi, unfortunately. But... I don't know. That's going to be a big test of his. And I'm not saying that he can't do it at a solid level, but it's just a different expectation. Because when it's, look at this center who can do this in spots, it's, whoa. When it's, look at this guy who's damn near a wing, it's, like, not as jaw-dropping. And especially when he's a rookie. So, I think the defense is going to be below average, certainly. I just think this is a team that needs to have Garland. You can have Sexton in there two really good 3 and D wings, and then Evan Mobley at center. And that's not even close to the formula they have right now. So they don't have that one star guy in his current level who's going to drive them and win a bunch of games. So I just think all around, I'm going to go 29 and 53. I think they're either the 12 or the 13 seed. I'll make a final decision on that at a later date. I think if there's too much talent for them to not progress from last year when they were 22 and 50, but I don't think that there's enough that works at a high level for this team for them to be in the mid-30s or anything like that. What's your official prediction? I have them going 30 and 52, just one more game up. I think you're right. They're too talented to regress from last season. Still don't like the fit. Still not going to make the playoffs. Cavs are going to Cavs. Yeah, but they're going to Cavs with a little bit more talent and a couple special guys. So, I don't know. Not reason to be depressed for Cleveland fans, in my opinion, okay? You're a ways away, but the future is still bright. I do truly believe that. Let's talk about the Pistons, for whom I think the future is also bright. Because you know what? While the Cavs got the guy who is, yes, the best prospect I've ever seen, I did say that and I did make a 16-minute video about it that you can check out. Cade Cunningham is unreal. First overall pick in an all-time draft for very good reason. 
I think he is obviously the storyline, the guy who is going to keep Pistons fans optimistic and happy this year. But what are you just expecting overall from this team? What are some of the keys to you? I mean, I'm not expecting anything from this team. Um, there's a few promising aspects. Like, I love the idea of just giving the keys to the offense to Killian and Cade. Playmaking-wise, I think you're going to be stunned a lot this season by some of the passes and plays that they make together. They both just see the floor so well. Um, this roster just blows. Like, I'm just going to I'm going to keep it a buck. I'm going to be pretty blunt. A lot of young talent here. I love Isaiah Stewart coming back. I love Sadiq Bey. I love Cade. I love Killian. And honestly, with these young guys around him, I love Jeremy heading the charge. So this talent doesn't blow as much as you seem to suggest. Yeah, and when I get to the Josh Jacksons and Trey Lyles of the world here on the bench. Dude, Kelly Olenek might put up 20 points per game off the bench, bruh. Kelly's going to get bucks. I don't know, bruh. Like, if the Detroit Pistons win more than 25 games, I'm going to be really astounded. I got them winning 26, but I'm genuinely, I think that's on the high end. I'm expecting virtually nothing from this team, Carson. I, they don't... Cade Cunningham is going to have the ball in his hands a lot. He's probably going to get really frustrated with the little talent he has around them. I don't know, bro. Like, are you expecting a drastic kind of turnaround here? Are you expecting any positive signs? I just expect the Pistons to suck. This is kind of hilarious because I feel like I had mostly good things to say about the Pistons, and I had them winning 24 games, which is less than you. I initially had 25, but then I was like, I just know that I'm going to be over what I have to eventually end up at. So... I just think you named a lot of talented basketball players there. There are no talentless teams in the NBA. And I think that this is a group that is not only talented and young, but that can complement each other pretty well. I am not positive who the fifth starter is here, but if you look at the four guys who I think are locks in that respect, with Cade, Sadiq Bey, Jeremy Grant, and Isaiah Stewart, you have, among that group, you're going to say Killian Hayes is a lock to be the fifth starter, right? Well, no, I'm just wondering. Like, I don't know... Frank Jackson, Saban Lee. No, no, no. I don't think that it has to be a point guard. I think Cade's your point guard. I get that. I. What other guard are you putting alongside Cade? Not a guard. I think that this is less than ideal because now you're asking Sadiq Bey to just guard straight-up guards night in, night out. But clearly, Kelly Olynyk is one of the five best players on your team. Yeah. And so you add shooting, you add a little bit of toughness there. He's a four, he's not a center, he can play with other bigs. So yeah, it's not going to be great, and they'd probably prioritize the development of Killian Hayes, but I think that's their best starting five, no doubt, if they're trying to win right now, because I love Killian, dude. You know, I'm a huge Killian guy. I love his passing, I like his tools defensively, good hands, smart basketball player, but the dude cannot score the basketball at this point, and I don't see the incentive to take the ball out of Cade's hands to put it in his hands when I just know that the offense is not going to flow at that same level and I don't have the same scoring threat with the ball in his hands for those significant minutes. I love this. I completely love this. I think it's honestly probably their best scenario. Like, you have a lot of floor spacing now. If you try to Linux out there, Grant's a decent spot-up shooter. Isaiah's going to have all of the ground open in the middle. I'd like to take. Um, and then I guess what? You just force Killian. You tell him, you got to go score off the bench. You got to go, you know, throw him into the fire. I kind of like it. Let him be a lead ball handler just mm -hmm. off the bench against bench units. It's like when he was playing in the C-League in Germany and he looked like a stud. Let him get back to that level. Let him build up some confidence. Let him show off that step back. I mean, it's not obviously like that really, but I do think that's a good situation for him. Let these guys sort of patrol their own areas of the game. Did you like what you saw to Cade and Killian in Summer League? I thought they worked pretty well together. I thought they worked okay together. 
But I think at the end of the day, these are two primary ball handlers who have the ability to work well enough off ball if Killian Hayes shoots well, Mm -hmm. which at this point he just has not done consistently, which by the way, he didn't do as a prospect, but his shot looked good. His touch was good on the floaters. So it was like, okay, he's going to have a shot. felt like a sure thing. Now it doesn't feel like quite as sure of a thing. So I actually expect that they will start Killian Hayes. I just don't think that's what's best for them. But if you look at the starting group that I have, right, maybe you're a little bit too big. Maybe you're a little bit slow defensively, but you have shooting. I would say almost, dare I say, an abundance of shooting. Everybody in that starting five would be able to shoot the ball. Isaiah Stewart can shoot the ball, man, and he's only going to get better there. Second half of last year, he, when he had opportunities, really showed that he can space the floor. You have some defense there with Isaiah. Jeremy Grant's competitive there. Kelly Olenek is good there. Actually, all five of those guys would be at least replacement level defenders. Cade can clamp up for a rookie, and Sadiq is a solid defender. He was up and down last year, but a solid defender nonetheless. So I just think like that's a group that not only has some talent, keep in mind Kelly Olenek averaged like 18 and four really efficiently on 57% shooting over the last month of last season or whatever it was. I had that stat on tap for a while because it was just blowing my mind. It's been a while now, but there's talent there. There's passing, there's shooting, there's defense, and you have two really good offensive players because Jeremy Grant, we already saw average 22 a game last year, right? I think Cade, right off the bat, is close to 20-7 and as a rookie. I just don't think we've seen an offensive prospect this developed all around come through the draft from the perimeter, probably since Luka Doncic, which is only two years ago, but people didn't expect Luka to be that. I just think immediately you're going to see the perimeter shot making, the handle. If he doesn't get into the mode that he occasionally wanders into where he's a little too perimeter heavy relying on his jump shot if he's getting downhill as the athlete that he is we're going to see him score on the interior we're going to see his playmaking like it's a given that he's going to be better there when he has NBA talent around him so I think he's clearly the rookie of the year to me I think he's almost a runaway candidate as much as I love Jalen Green and Evan Mobley and then Jeremy Grant as your best or co-best offensive player or whatever that's fine for a team that we're asking to win 20-something games. Isaiah, I think, is going to be really good post-All-Star break. We saw him take a big leap, average 10.5 and 7.5 on 55% shooting, and as I referred to, made 20 of 58 threes. Very solid. Good touch. Sadiq Bey, like maybe he's not ever going to be all that much more than he is right now, but as a rookie, he scored 12 a game on 38% shooting from three. So like, I just like it. I like it. I think it works. I think there's talent. I still have been winning 24 games because I think that their bench is disgusting and they don't have a true star. And at the end of the day, if you don't have that, it's tough to win a lot of games in basketball. But they're top five, I like. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you made a good point with the bench unit. And I like what they're doing for the future. That's all this is. We're going to let Cade run the show. We're going to let him develop. We're going to see how these pieces work together. And I think it does work long-term. Like, I think I think Sadiq Bey, Isaiah Stewart, and Cade Cunningham are the long-term options at all three of those positions. So, even if Killian doesn't hit, you've got three out of five of your prospective contender already laid out. Everything else you can retool over time. The bench does suck, though. It's so guard-heavy, too, man. Like, I like Saban Lee. I like Frank Jackson. I love watching those guys play ball. They're feisty guys. They they got a nice little change of pace in their game. They get into the lane. They knock down tough shots. <sighs> Trey Lyles, though. Josh Jackson. Hamadou Diallo. Hey, 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 let's not put Hami into that same tier, all right? I like him more than I like Josh Jackson. Yeah, me too, but it's... 
Let me ask you this. We've had this, this is a time-old debate between PTG, Peyton T. Gallagher, friend of the show, and Nerd Sesh. Does Luca Garza, first of all, because I don't think Luca Garza plays. I don't know if he makes the roster this first season. I think he's probably more of a G League, you know, sub-in, sub-out for injuries. Does he cross that? And, and what official threshold are we going here for Luca Garza? Is it 100 minutes or 1,000 minutes? I'm not answering any questions about Luca Garza. We've already talked about him too much on Nerd Sesh. No, bro. Like, what's the official mark? Is it 100 or 1,000? Peyton C. Gallagher said he would not play 100 NBA minutes, which he is going to do very easily. If you set it at 1,000, I will take the under. My question for you is, does he play a... Does he ever get NBA minutes in this rotation first season? Yeah, not legitimate minutes, but undeniably as the year progresses and the Pistons no longer care about winning games, he's going to play some. And I know that some people were optimistic about what they saw from him in the offseason, you know, shredded some weight, but I'm just not a Luka Garza optimist. I don't think that he's worth talking about, and so I refuse to talk about him. I would rather talk about Saban Lee undeniably. I love Saban Lee, but you're absolutely right, Logan. You're absolutely right. This bench is completely guard-heavy, and those guards are just not good enough to justify being guard-heavy. Like, dude, Rodney Magruder's going to have to play, and honestly might be one of their more average bench players. Trey Lyles, yeah, he's just fine. (laughs) So I just don't think that there's really anything to talk about with the bench. To me, it's continuing to see the development of that young starting five, having those more veteran guys like a Jeremy Grant, like a Kelly Olenek in there as sort of foundational stabilizing pieces. And even though I like a lot of those elements, realistically, at the end of the day, they're really young. They're going to struggle on both ends. They're going to be outmatched talent-wise by a lot of teams that just want to win. But if they play hard, if they play collectively as a unit, if they figure some things out and understand how they can work together, if we see progress from Killian Hayes, if Cade is what we expect him to be, which I'd be very surprised if he isn't, I like what they have. So I have them winning 24 games. I have them finishing as the 14 seed. But overall, I'm excited for Pistons basketball this year, and I'm excited for that fan base. Yeah, I'm excited to watch for sure. I probably got him winning. I, got, I said I got him winning 26. I'm probably going to lower that total as we get closer, probably closer to 23. It's going to be a long season for Pistons fans, but hopefully a promising one. Look, I think even last year would qualify as a promising season for Pistons fans because you got pretty darn good draft value out of Sadiq Bay and Isaiah Stewart. And uh, I do have to just give some Killian Hayes stats, even though they bum me out. Summer League, he scored six points a game on 31% from the field and 18% from three. Like, he just is not there as a scorer right now. The shot has to fall. Has to fall because he's not the kind of dynamic athlete who's just going to get to the bucket. He has the in-between game, but the in-between game is tough to rely on when you're a young NBA player. So I'm just a little bit concerned about him there. Killian Hayes, Kevin O'Connor's number one prospect in that draft. Way to go, Kevin. I, I like the take. I was a big Killian guy. It's just sad. I don't want to see him flame out, dude. He's so... Oh, the C-League. It just gets you sometimes. The passing, though, still, he averaged 5.3 assists per game in the NBA as a rookie when he's scoring, like, 7 on 30-something percent shooting. So, I don't know. Maybe in a different spot. Maybe even here, Killian can find his role. Just wasn't a great rookie year. Wasn't a great summer league. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. There is our Central Division preview. Went for about a buck 45 here, but I was a great pod, Logan. I felt energized throughout and just happy to be talking about NBA basketball again to all of you beautiful fans. It's going to be such a fun season. It was already, obviously, a remarkable offseason, and the preview content is not stopping from us anytime soon. 
So, if you enjoyed what you saw here today, excellent. We appreciate it. Why don't you stick around? See what else we have to offer here at Nerd Sesh. You can see on our YouTube channel that we live stream our pods. We do two to three a week and should pretty consistently be at three a week now with NBA stuff starting when it's possible. So we live stream those on our YouTube channel. You can also see that we post video essays, video breakdowns to our channel. I just did one on why Evan Mobley is the best prospect I've ever seen. Highly recommend you go check it out. I thought it was a good video. You can also follow us on social media. Twitter is at nerd underscore sesh. Instagram is at nerd sesh. TikTok is as well. And we post a lot of video content from the pod to our social media, Twitter and Instagram. We post a lot of graphic content there. You can see our predictions and whatnot in a visual form. So I recommend all that. You can also just listen to the pod straight up on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your audio content. And I will link those mediums in the description. But with that, as always, I've been Carson Brabber. I've been Logan Gamden. And this was Nerd Sash.